0: Hi, Smita, and uh, welcome to Scottonomics. Um, My first question to you is it's actually two questions, Smita. So, can you explain to the audience uh, what development economics is? And also, you're the first microeconomist that we've had on the show. Would you
1: like to explain what attracted you to study micro rather than macroeconomics? It's actually a great set of two questions, because I would return the first one and say uh, the second one and say, why in the world am I your first micro uh, person? Uh, but, but let's uh, just dive into the first question for a second. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So hello to you and your audiences. Um, development economics is a mixed contentious uh, area. Um, And it has, for many, many years, uh, had a big fight about whether or not it studies economies that are so-called developing, or it's a subclass of economics, or it's a different economics, and so on. I would much rather say I study the phenomenon of economic development, which is fairly neutral to the arguments about whether we hive off the economics or treat them differently. And once you do that, you actually end up with a whole set of more interesting research questions to ask about, indeed, can one do that at all? Um, Why micro? Um, You know, I have to say, uh, partly because I came out of the sciences, I was always somebody who was genuinely curious about how things came together. Uh, I wanted to understand how technologies work. I wanted to understand how firms uh, made the decisions they made. Um, why were different kinds of organizations pulled together in some economies but not others? Um, So I really like the the kind of hands-on feel of micro and uh, with the caveat that microeconomics as we know it is fairly imprecise uh, about studying issues of uh, technological change in particular. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I think it's a, just to pitch, for, for new audiences for your show as well. I think this is a tremendously uh, exciting time for um, anybody interested in micro. Uh, partly because we know from our macro models that not only is there a great deal of contention about what the meso or micro level requires, um, but there's also an opportunity to get into areas like health or climate or uh, energy, uh, all kinds of new crossover complex areas that really lend themselves much better um, in the study of micro.
0: And do you think that innovation is the one thing that drives a modern economy?
1: You know, that's a that's a question I would like to rephrase, which is I don't think it's the only driver of the modern economy. After all, we need many ways in which you need to provide uh, goods and services which might not be especially innovative, but might be responsive. Uh, So not everything has to be new in the sense of innovation. You can have mature products or mature services that could be done in a new way. So I would perhaps parse that in a little bit more detail. I would say that we do know, whether it's Schumpeterian or other kinds of frameworks, we do know that innovation can be addressed along multiple types of novelty. And only one of those types requires what we tend to think of in the business literatures as you know, exciting new products or, or processes. In fact, you could have new markets, you could have new types of organizations, you could have new service models. So from a micro standpoint, we would say, yes, indeed, innovation does drive a modern economy, but not necessarily in the ways you would traditionally see in newspaper headlines.
0: Okay, so I think it's important for our audience to maybe give them a little bit of background about Schumpeter, because we haven't spoken about Schumpeter on the program yet, and um, also perhaps maybe give us some background about, sorry, give us some insight
1: into your um, science background. Yeah, so so first uh, to to Schumpeter, uh, he certainly had a lot less facial hair than some of the other folks that we tend to to read more of, Um, but he actually, um, despite the contention about Schumpeter, uh, despite the questions about whether his type of economic development necessarily represents all the insights about economic development around, he probably gave us one of the more interesting languages for discussing um, the role of entrepreneurs about risk, uncertainty, um, and it differentiated what we tend to think of loosely as the managerial class. For example, the moment you recognize that they're financiers, but they're also uh, owners, somebody different is bearing the risk. So it's not quite um, lined up in a neat way with with Marxian um, perspectives. On the other hand, Schumpeter. Uh, given the time, the, the the period, and the geographies he was studying, obviously couldn't accommodate all the different ways in which you might actually handle risk in the economy. And just to come back to your first question, where you asked about the relationship between micro, micro and macro, this is actually a really productive place for the, for the connections um, to understand who, who bears the risk. Why do we have certain kinds of macro models? Um, What might we be trying to do to, on the one hand, create new um, ways of approaching the economy? We want new creative energy in the economy. On the other hand, clearly, we can't keep using the same language for all the new types of organizations uh, out there. So maybe I'll just elaborate that point a little further. Suppose you're a firm. You want to invest in, let's say, neonatal incubators or new water potability devices, or um, maybe even a new COVID diagnostic kit, chances are the way in which the model of risk is framed at the micro and the macro levels are going to look quite different. And there are going to be, in a way, much stronger arguments made for how the state or how the government uh, or industrial policy should be framed in order to minimise that risk, because you need a fairly quick response. So there are different indicators, there are different debates about risk and uncertainty that have to be brought in. But what Schumpeter did, I think, quite well, um, is to at least lay out some of the the new actors in the system uh, that we can't take for granted and the relationships between them. Um, there's a very rich um, debate about neo-Schumpeterian models and how they all speak or n- not speak to each other. Uh, I've done a little bit of writing here, and I think it's important to emphasize that you can be empathetic to a Schumpeterian model, but but disagree about some of its uh, fundamentals, depending on the economy, um, on science. I yeah, um, I, I um, did some of my early work in physics and uh, and maths. Um, so I didn't come into economics believing that everything had to be written out uh, in formalizations to prove who it was. Um, so that was quite, uh, quite nice. It allowed you to open up a set of questions and not worry about whether everything had to be abstracted with the same means as I think undergraduates in economics are taught these days. Um, And I think certainly my my physics lab experience um, and interest in how science progresses has uh, brought me to thinking about economics, certainly in in a more open-ended way than had I done my undergraduate in economics.
0: So I'm surprised that you say that because from your paper, the paper that I read rather, um, I expected you to say biological sciences because you use quite a lot of language coming from evolution. Um, so yeah, what? How did that come about? You know, how do you think that you've moved into this more biological framing?
1: So, as, as uh, you know, in, in the traditions of institutional economics, of which there are many, um, there has always been this sort of, um, you know, love-hate relationship between biology and economics. And that goes back um, a good hundred years, at least. And it's precisely because we want to understand how certain kinds of population groups change over time. Uh, These population groups in my work are mostly firms or new technologies and so on. And we really want to understand both from a kind of a statistical process, but also in terms of the institutions and how they change in a society. We want to understand this much more. So perhaps it's not surprising that some of the language loosely connects. Um, But a word of caution on this. You know, um, for those among your audiences who really want to dive into this, everyone from, um, you know, Veblen to others who have influenced certain areas of institutional economics in different ways have, of course, um, played with the notion of evolution. Um, and in, um, I, I sit on the um, International Advisory Board for the Review of Evolutionary Political Economy, which started quite recently, And what we have is a very vast array of people working at different scales, different units of analysis, and different methodologies to really parse what is evolving um, over time and what does this evolution really represent to a dynamic economy. So I think that's actually a, a fruitful conversation between the different disciplines, but to be honest, economics has been having that conversation with multiple disciplines, whether or not we recognize that over time, right? So it's, it's exciting stuff and we can be, depending on subgroups and, and your audiences, obviously they can go searching. There's a whole host of, of different groups that look into this much, much more and with, with a fair amount of precision.
2: It's, it's a last year you co-authored a paper called Emergency Driven Capacity Building, COVID-19 and the UK's Response towards increasing capability and production of PPE. Now, when when a member of the public looks at that, you know, we think that that process was was. was, was which is laden with issues and difficulties. So could you tell us a little bit more about that paper and what it said about the UK's ability to deal with emergencies and crisis? And I'm thinking about that when I read the paper, thinking about the climate crisis. What does that tell us with that um, perspective as well?
1: Uh, It's it's a good question precisely because we're all thinking about this issue, right? How do we think about the health crisis, the climate crisis, uh, energy and so on? Um, I began the paper actually from a different vantage point. So just to return to the theme that we began with um, in this discussion, why micro? Because we really want to try and understand why countries did so differently with respect to COVID in terms of their response why is it that some of the standard preoccupations of industrial development, GDP per capita, um, sophistication of technologies, resilience of health systems didn't quite go the way anybody expected around the globe. And I think without micro and particularly institutional and evolutionary perspectives, you would still be quite lost about how to explain this purely from a macro standpoint. Because the the systems of institutional sort of the norms, the rules, the guidelines, the standards, the technical standards uh, and the regulations with which countries under very tight circumstances with a huge amount of uncertainty had to predict or at least had to make good guesses about what to do, that really actually uh, showed us uh, how different Uh, the standard comparisons between countries uh, could be imagined during this time. Um, And so a country like uh, sort of the UK versus uh, Brazil versus the US, France, India, you name it, these were countries that all responded in different ways, even though ostensibly they were all pushing towards the same goal, which is more vaccines or more COVID diagnostic kits or lockdowns and so on. So we began this research really um, to think about what the comparative national question was. Could we even reliably look at some of the indicators coming out to try and understand whether or not these were solid, uh, instead of proclaiming that one country was doing worse or one country was doing better. So with that background, this paper with my UK colleagues uh, was really to try and understand how did the regional, particularly the regional and the sort of subnational governments manage the response in terms of allowing quite a lot of new uh, rules to be written in a way the sort of agility to respond and not have everything go back through national governments becomes very important because health is such a local issue, and so pulling in new um, actors into the innovation uh, mix trying to identify new groups but also strategically importing when you needed to becomes a very critical issue now that's a sensitive question we all know this has been highly sensitive across countries Uh, and with a trade um, effectively a trade embargo with with everything from lockdown to actual cessation of exports Many countries didn't have the uh, luxury of importing what they needed when they needed it. So there was immense pressure with the existing firms, the existing government labs and so on, to actually respond. So we have been, I would say, fairly diplomatic in that working paper. And we are trying to think through how to be perhaps a little less diplomatic as we write the main paper.
2: A couple of points there. You were talking about health being very local. And, you know, I, I think that, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that is almost saying, you know, that the best decisions for health are made as close to those who need that support as possible. This idea of subsidiarity, that those decisions were best made when people were really close to the issues. Is that a fair reflection of, of that point?
1: Um, I, I, I would answer that in, in two different ways. Um, so the short the, the, the short response is you always have to know what is happening locally. There's no way around it. Um, so the real question is whether you have the agility to change the rules of really specific um, policy instruments that you have. I'll give you an example. When you're looking at, say, COVID diagnostic kits, one of the things in many countries that we looked at which was really critical was how much discretion do you have about changing procurement rules? How fast can you procure what you need to procure? How fast can you allow new engineering groups to tweak something that might not work? Uh, Somebody at the end of an administrative um, hierarchy has to have some um, discretion about what they define as the higher policy priority. And this is true across countries. So just to give you an example from a country like India, which, as you know, is immense, uh, the responses across different states uh, were quite different. And many different combinations of institutional um, tweaking were evident. So there wasn't a single way to respond, but there were many effective ways to respond. Now, but had you not had some kind of coordinated discussion about how much demand you were estimating or coordinated um, response in terms of imports at critical times or a push towards investment or perhaps even using your railways or your defense or whatever was needed during COVID, the chances are that coordination would have broken down. So if I had to simplify further, I would say a critical aspect of the microeconomic analysis of any kind would be around what the rules are that have been defined and how much you can play with them given the technical issues that are clearly relevant at a time like this. So. I think what you're hearing from me also is that particularly around technological change, around new knowledge systems, around investments in firms, I think the the traditional more ideological positions that you might take at a macro level uh, would come under huge scrutiny because you really do need uh, different actors in the mix, Um, but your local groups have to have a way of feeding back into the policy system, and um, many countries, I think, did surprisingly well, and they were not the ones we would traditionally have thought of as as uh, succeeding. So, if you look at economies uh, in Asia and Africa, many of who were written off, um, in fact, they did. Uh, they were fairly resilient, I would say. They came out of this much better than we had thought. Um, and they have now entered, so this is the market question now, they have also created new markets, they have um, regulated them in new ways, they have responded to their local communities in different ways, and that's as it should be. Uh, I would be very surprised if there was a rule that worked for everyone. I think that goes without saying. It's just from a science standpoint, can can we systematize that insight into economics? Instead of just paying that lip service, right? So there is a kind of a methodology theory question in front of us going forward. Right, so we know that there is a crisis, that there has been a crisis brewing in economics now for a good decade. Students responding saying we're not prepared to deal with practical issues, Uh, professors feeling under siege about what they're teaching and feeling out of date. And this is the question on evidence. What do we consider to be legitimate evidence that we bring into not just the classroom, but open conversations about um, really quite critical policy decisions, um, just as a slightly um, a, a response on how groups to come together to actually have this debate. I think it's really the moment for us uh, in terms of several social crises to think about how we communicate with each other around our disciplines. After all, many of us are multidisciplinary, but we're also speaking across disciplines that are usually not in the same room at the same time. So the question of evidence becomes especially critical to be able to say, what am I actually looking at? So one, um, one thing that I think a lot of micro economists or people interested in micro level issues for policy and planning, uh, the thing that they do Is they look at very practical measures. They look at measures such as how much money went into the system, how many, uh, what types of subsidies were provided, how many of those firms performed, uh, what kinds of quality measures of diagnostic kits do we have. After a pandemic, will we have a new market for these things, right? So these are very practical questions that can only really be determined if you're keeping an open mind and coming to the table saying, I have a problem I want to solve. This is not going to be, uh, I'll use that phrase again, an ideological conversation about who should be involved, because we will discover that people are, there are many new stakeholders in order to solve the problem that were necessarily invited. This is usually the case. So If you have a biologist or if you have an economist or a policy planner, you have somebody else, they have to be able to say, I have data points one, two, three. They're imprecise. They're not longitudinal, clean little panel sets that you can use over seven years. I have this. It's messy. What can we do with it? So in a way, I think microeconomists, in the way I'm using that term, tend to be quite pragmatic. We need to see change happen, or you are seeing change happen, and you want to figure out what did you learn from the situation that you can move. Um, This is really important. I mean, I can't emphasize this enough. You need people at the table who are willing to just say, all right, you have virology data. How might I connect this virology data to data with, um, say, lockdowns or with school closings? or with the number of people queuing up at centers. So you must have a conversation that is really focused on what's out there. Um, And because that generates our new theory as well, right? Um, So I think this is a
2: very exciting conversation. It's wonderful to hear this from an economist because, you know, maybe it's more the micro economists than the macro economists who tend to have that approach. And, uh, you know, we often speak about um, William Nordhaus and his um, view of the climate, which was completely detached from any kind of climate science and, and it was it was that kind of arrogance and that ego is almost to say, well, no, your science has to fit into my model for it to be validated. And, and you know, it's really refreshing to hear that because that's much more practical when an economist sits in the room and says, I don't have all the answers. I've got some of them, but we all need to work together to find out what the answer is. And not that here's my paper on how the economy works um, and how we avoid climate crisis. So it's really refreshing to hear that
1: with just a, a response on on the climate models I think that relationship goes two ways and in a way because I think I came out of the sciences I would have made a very mediocre scientist but coming out of science one of the things I was very aware of of the in a way the pretensions of our different disciplines uh that that propose either a hierarchy or refuse to speak to each other. So in a way, I think of my my professional responsibility as also being a good interlocutor. We must do this. Otherwise, why the heck are we doing what we do? Uh, on the Nordhaus models, however, I would say that there is a kind of a major gap we have to be um, wary uh, of or conscious of, which is that Climate scientists also have really dropped the ball. They make very strong assumptions about how firms behave without a lot of evidence for it. So let's take a very practical example where I, you know, I've taught students this, where we're looking at team building work around, say, flooding in lower Manhattan or something like this. Now, if you say, I'm going to let it be somebody else's problem to figure out how to evacuate people in lower Manhattan when the water rises... We are going to be moving our all of our disciplines many years um, back. And the worry is that neither the climate scientists who are still also talking in generalities about models and none of the practicalities, and certainly the economists who are speaking about big frameworks without any of the practicalities, we're still not moving forward. So I am a little, um, I would say cautious about where the fault lies. But one thing I would certainly stress is for students coming into the field today, the bar is higher. You cannot just do an economics degree and and hold it as a badge of honor unless you've really worked on practical problems. I, for example, in some of my areas do not hire and do not recommend people who can't show that they've worked on practical problems because I know therefore that their critical lens on theory and methods is really quite flawed. So it's important. It's fantastic. Um,
0: I'm really heartened to hear you say that that you're bringing economics into a reality. I wanted to go back to a point that you made about the professors feeling threatened, and I think this also goes to the heart of some things that are wrong with academia. I have friends who also teach in universities as well, and the, the, perhaps that there's a, a, a there needs to be a loosening up in universities about how people think and work in universities and so you know these these professors doing one-on-one economics feel threatened by their positions and this is illogical to me we're in a world where you know technology has moved exponentially you know for me as a child I was looking at a black and white television and now I have a device that I can you know speak to someone on the opposite side of the world this has happened in 50 years you know why should an economics professor feel threatened by that they should embrace it but also so should perhaps the university establishment the people that are in charge of universities who frankly also pay themselves quite a lot of money (laughs) so i think that they, they they definitely should embrace it for that reason Can you expand on the idea of a new economic nationalism uh, taking shape globally?
1: So um, to respond to your earlier point briefly, because it will provide a good segue, I think. You know, about 40 years ago, actually much more, um, Dick Nelson and Sidney Winter wrote their magnum opus on, on an evolutionary approach to economic growth. And a fundamental idea in that was really the the role of new knowledge. Um, And one of the things that's quite extraordinary is even after probably now a good half century, economists who claim to be discussing um, new knowledge, new technologies, innovation, hardly reference this work at all. So there's a kind of uh, dishonesty in, in economics that hasn't gone away, which is the pretension, many famous people writing about technology today who haven't read some of this pathbreaking work or even decided to critique it in a useful way. So this applies to, I would say, a lot of uh, folks working on economic development. Um, I didn't get my PhD in an economics department which is probably why I work on economics with all of my economics training in a much more applied way because most of the economists I worked with were not only applied, they saw their academic role, their advisory role, their work with multilateral organizations, with firms as a fairly seamless relationship of insights, theory, practice, teaching. And I think this comes back to the point you made, uh, Karen, about the the sort of responsibility of what universities have to take on. I, I fear a lot of universities are quite happy with the status quo, and uh, so are so are a lot of professors. On the economic nationalism, I think going forward, um, those countries that recognize their particular, bundle of institutions and organizations, do not look at them with rose-tinted glasses, but are able to view what they have in with a kind of a sense of realism, understand what technologies, technological capabilities they have, what science or what research or what types of firms they have, are going to move forward very quickly. We've already seen, partly because of COVID, but in the last three years, three to five years. If you looked at the top five economies by just GDP, uh, not GDP per capita, but GDP and the investments coming in, you will see that there are very few countries from in the top 10 list that um, you could predictably say would continue to be there. In fact, in the next 10 years, you will see an entirely different set of countries making up the top five or the top seven. You could poo-poo this idea and say, who cares about GDP or who cares about the growth numbers? But growth is important for the simple reason that it is showing us that some places are agile enough to combine and recombine their, their, um, their rules, the types of organizations, and the nature of investment. For small countries, I think this is going to be quite difficult but therefore their relationships and bilateral partnerships with other countries, their ability to do uh, diplomacy in new ways are also going to be very important uh, for not just bringing the investment in, but expanding the market. So to come back to your point, William, I think even for that, there has to be a great, much greater decentralization as well as autonomy about defining the region and the kinds of industrial or innovation policies they have
2: um um authority of. and that's a really interesting perspective and, and we when when we think of small we think of agile you know and you said that's a real deterrent is, is is being agile but also there's there's other elements that lead to success when you're you're a nation you have to have a big enough population you have to have a you know a wide enough speed of influence as you were saying there but i think if we were to look at kind of smaller nations like Finland, Denmark, and New Zealand, they're kind of the three nations that Scotland, in, in a sense, kind of aspires to. Um, are, are their institutions different from larger units? You know, like a, a Canada or, or a United States.
1: It's a great question. I mean, one one little piece I would add to this debate is the. The structure of the economy, the composition of the economy matters. If you are highly, particularly from an industrial policy standpoint, economic development standpoint, you must have some diversification. For the very simple um, um, the context that if you don't, not only are you highly dependent on your neighbors or your region, you are at, from an innovation standpoint, at considerable risk. Uh, let's for a moment step over to West Asia, right, or the Persian Gulf region. There's a reason there is so much uh, worry and foment. And it is because uh, the diversification out of their source industries is neither fast enough, nor are there sufficient numbers of groups that are willing to invest, stay for the long haul. You have to think about migration. You have to think of a lot of things. So I would actually encourage uh, regions that are thinking about a long-term autonomy or a long-term future to really try to get back to the, the design table and ask, are those the right countries to contrast with? Um, might there be, given the structure of the economy, a different set of places, either nations or other sub-regional entities that could be better uh, comparisons and much tighter relationships built with them. Um, I would not say that New Zealand or um, uh, Scotland, for example, should be compared for a range of reasons having to do with the structure of the economy. But I might say that a more useful comparison, let's just say you want to build out, let's go back to the COVID paper for for a second, You actually want to build out a lot of your labs and you want to restructure the labs and the health system in a new way that perhaps looks at ports and logistics or warehousing. I might even look at very different economies like Oman, uh, which have really don't come in the same frame that we are traditionally taught. But these are countries that are also trying to figure out how to move things forward. They're combining things that are unexpected, and so if European conversations or continental or UK conversations stay within either the landmass or across uh, across the pond, you run the risk of not looking at really exciting comparisons. And I think we do need to go back to the drawing board for those because I I'm a great believer in policy menus um, that not only build partnerships around the world, but also allow you to have a set of options that brings people to the table for a discussion. Um, and it's an exciting time. It's really an exciting time, not just geopolitically, um, but, you know, it's a high risk moment. Um, and you're all closer to, to big changes in Europe, but this is true in Asia uh, and Africa as well. So. Instead of discussing them purely as nations or as continents, but if we look both at national and sub-regional level and also across industries, specific industries, you open out a set of policy menu options that is far more interesting to build models out.
2: That That's a, a really important point and there's a document in Scotland called the Sustainable Growth Commission and it was it envisaged how Scotland will be uh, um, as an independent country uh, and I think from memory it looked at seven similar countries and I think what you've said what if I'm reading between the lines, what you've said there is that's not really a very good idea in terms of structuring your economy is to look at seven similar countries. What you should be doing is looking at a much wider range of options and seeing how you compare it and and taking from that. And obviously that's a much bigger task and challenge. But I think that is a really interesting perspective because obviously as the Scottish government right now, if you're heading towards independence, your opportunities to change the institutions are the design stage going back to the drawing board? But I think on a grander scale, right now, every country on the planet has this opportunity because of the decarbonisation of the economy, moving towards a just transition, and also, you know, fighting the climate crisis. The institutions are a position where they were, in the you know, at the outbreak of the Second World War when firms have to completely change. The government has to change, society has to change the way that we do everything. Do you think that's a fair way to look at the economy now and what it needs to change?
1: You know, I I think we find ourselves in a very odd moment. Um, We are really at a stage where the number of countries uh, pushing back against the traditional Bretton Woods um, sort of institutional framework, uh, it's a very large number. And uh, this is true, especially outside Europe, but even within um, kind of the wider UK and uh, surely Scotland, as well as uh, the European um, debates. The Bretton Woods institutions have got us to a particular moment uh, where we can only go so far. And while we may use them in quite a clunky way to make them work, um, the reality is that we require very different rules and stewardship that are really missing in the debate today. So one of the reasons uh, I think micro, um, uh, a kind of a micro focus actually approaches geopolitics in a new way is because there's a kind of agnosticism about different subsectors. For instance, at the WTO, you might take one position around agriculture, but a very different position around extractive industries. And there isn't one national position on all of these subsectors. And this is really important. This is part of the agility that you want to have, not be pegged as this country is always going to do X or Y. And um, I think the ability to rewrite those rules. Uh, occurs at different levels. One of course is the kind of multilateral, the supranational level, but there are many others uh, and they could be within conventions and frameworks, they could be within uh, particular joint venture partnerships that are built across multiple industries. So I think we need to be, uh, to be conscious that the, the customs, the norms, the rules, the guidelines, the technical standards are as important, if not more, in keeping that agility alive. Not all our tweaking has to happen at the level of the United Nations or some European convention. It can happen at at other levels. And leaving those options on the table seems especially important. I don't know. um, I speak from a point of great ignorance about um, the issues that are being discussed uh, on your side. But I do know that anytime you want to have a deepening of industrial capabilities or building out a long-term plan for sort of a technologically capable region, you must have um, the authority as well as new stakeholders to set those priorities in the first place. You can't be given priorities. You have to have forums for discussing what those might be. Um, And, you know, uh, not everyone likes debate. We know that. Uh, Debate means change. Uh, Change is uncomfortable. Absolutely. Industry associations are very important in this as well. Um, So industry associations actually have both a quite progressive as well as regressive role to play and ideally a virtuous pathway for industry associations actually makes, makes the case for strengthening over the long-term because they, in many respects, have a, a more realistic assessment of what the risks are.
0: So when economies change, Smita, for example, when a country becomes independent, how much of an impact do you think that has on institutions? Do they change? And if so, do, does that tend to happen quickly, slowly? Um, and I would imagine that economic changes in part a reaction against
1: prevailing institutions. You know, from the history of economic development, even over the last 75 to 80 years, that the countries that became newly independent went through really a lot of trauma um, on decolonization. And without kind of going down the road of asking what forms of trauma that might have taken, it is evident that the pace of institutional change was much slower than the optimism that prevailed at the time. Um, It was certainly the case that there was a lot of power, uh, different groups that, that wish to retain power remained. And it's not that easy to dislodge uh, these groups. So, I think the history of economic development, uh, on the one hand, is quite uh, a pessimistic story because it means that the geopolitical relations through which uh, continued investment um, and and dependence built into the structure of um, countries and country controls, um, that's a depressing story. Um, That's not a very optimistic story. On the other hand, uh, from a technology and an industrial development story, I would say I'm hugely optimistic. Um, I actually think the more attention you pay to the micro, the fundamentals of the economy, as opposed to the big letter, marquee uh, um, sort of here's what our economy is about. You start looking at fundamentals and you give room, in the institutional transition for different groups to uh, not just discuss, I don't mean to keep this abstract, I also mean very practically, somebody's got to invest, somebody's got to expand their firms, someone's got to build out new joint ventures or new technology licensing partnerships. These actually allow for a much more realistic conversation about new actors um, in the process. you give up some autonomy because you become embedded within a global economy in a new way. Um, But that's not necessarily a bad problem to have. Uh, It depends what the goal is here. So I would say that the, the process of some types of institutional change are slow, but some are incredibly rapid. An example, We have learned in a very short two-year period with high uncertainty that people's minds can be changed for good or bad about a lot of things. Uh, We have seen that people will queue for staples in a way that we didn't think was going to happen. We have seen people respond to vaccinations or not respond well to vaccinations, Um, but yet, Countries have managed and move ahead. If you had to put that in the long run perspective, every crisis of this kind shows us that a new set of assumptions have to be uh, brought in and updated in our models. Um, people are willing to do surprisingly new things, uh, depending on how the wider environment is seen. Um, so, Schumpeter, uh, the Austrian economists, uh, many of them recognized this, the the original American um, uh, institutionalists recognized how critical uncertainty was um, in framing the debate on economics. So if you have any audience out here today um, in your taping who's, who's reluctant to pick up uh, some new economist, I strongly urge, especially young people uh in economics, ask yourself why am I not being taught X or Y? Uh, go hunt down some of the big ferocious debates in institutionalism over the last hundred years. Uh what kinds of, of debates were out there and might they be relevant again when we think about risk, uncertainty, uh, evolution? These are really critical issues.
0: I think that's very telling that you 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 talk about us taping this show, <laughs> and I might easily fall into that category too. <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting that you point out there as well, uh, you know, when you're talking about different economic schools of thought, you know, I've come fairly late to economics, maybe four years ago, and you're looking at the different schools, going, well, they've got a point there, and they've got a point there, but then that's complete nonsense as far as I can tell, and I think that. Um, you know, people, uh, the general public as well, feel the same way about politicians and political parties. You know, that that tribalism uh, that, that sometimes moves into non-logic. Um, if we can just get people to work together with the logical aspects of what they're talking about, the things that are really going to have good effects on the world, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> I've got to finish with one last question. So can you elaborate on what, what that means Uh, what you mean
1: by uh, the narrow reading of markets? I think one of the things that has happened over the last 50 years is we've kind of, markets have either been this uh, panacea for all problems or they've ended up getting bashed as sort of the problem. I do think there is a way in which, particularly in an evolutionary or institutional standpoint, there's a way in which to approach markets in a quite open-ended way, markets are man-made creations, right? They didn't fall from from the heavens. We create them, we legitimize them, we prolong them, we regulate them, we nullify them, and uh, we decide which markets have higher priority than others. So, if we are, if we have a real problem with markets, I would say that one way to approach this is to say. How much variety do you have in your markets? What kinds of markets do you actually have? Uh, For example, when I used to teach micro, I would ask a lot of students to begin with a traditional auction. And I would often ask them, why is it you're making all these theoretical assumptions about auctions? Let's just auction something right here in class. Let's just play. Play, play it through. And very quickly, people begin to understand some of the nuances that come into market structure or why we might do certain things with markets. So I think that this sort of, you know, kind of almost viewing markets as phenomenology, um, not taking them as, as somehow antithetical to the structure of the economy, but a fundamental part of the variety that exists of institutional forms in any economy means that you have a set of options that you can look at more realistically. I find that in a lot of economics conversations, people have already taken off many of the options available, and then they come and wonder why somebody else can't speak to them. Um, I do think this is an opportunity, given our complex social problems, to be opening up our set of options, putting them on the table and saying, look, nothing up my sleeve here. Let's try and see whether there's something we can all come and discuss. I don't think we teach that enough. And even the process of dialogue is not something we teach enough. Um, it used to be in all of our departments that we would often say that one of the most critical things we teach is not the theory or the methods. It's actually the point of, of um, reading, writing and standing up and Talking about ideas, um, it makes people much more likely to want to continue the conversation.
2: I just wanted to make a comment on on institutional development and how important it is. And if we look forty years back to the kind of start of neoliberalism, our institutions have undergone a huge and dramatic change. If you're thinking about the role of corporations and these kind of you know and, and privatization, the the the, the um, uh, trade unions, the role of governments, central banks. There's been a huge change in the institutions over 40 years. Um, my final question is, how do you think we can get across to people that it's really important that they understand the change that has happened in the institutions and what impact that's had on society? And kind of fundamentally that As you said earlier, the the changes haven't happened just by chance, but they've been made over a succession of governments and and right through society to make these changes for a particular reason. How do you think we get that across to people that it's important and it can change and we can do it again, we can change all those institutions again?
1: Many, many years ago, I did did do some work with uh, non-profits, uh, labour unions, cooperatives and so on. And to the point on empathy, I think there's a great deal in the goals of uh, sharing, of ensuring that we can empathize with people who are in very different life circumstances, because almost any complex social problem is going to have people distributed over some spectrum that we want to try and understand. Having said that, there, in any changing economy, there are going to be transitions that are not going to be popular. And anticipating that that is not going to be popular is as much part of the plan as anything else. So having the ability to not just buffer hardship, but also being fairly hard-nosed about communicating priorities is is non-trivial. Uh, people don't want to take on the political task of being unpopular. So, in the realm of communicating what are higher or lower priorities, um, you know, hats off to people in the political arena because they are the ones who actually bear the highest risk and probably the most honest assessment of whether or not they've been um, effective. Academics are probably the slowest. Uh, in in this transformation. Uh, I'm a bit of a cynic at the pace at which universities and academia transforms. Uh, So I would almost urge that one should be somewhat um, cautious about all the economic models people are seeing. Uh, The ones who probably have the highest stakes are uh, the ones coming in who are putting out their model and saying, test this, or try this, or I think this might work, let's have a conversation, or have you considered X or Y, and let's see how it plays out. Those are the folks you want to trust more because they've thrown their hat in the ring and said, let's try. They have not said, here is what it looks like on the blackboard And in paper X in journal Y, right? They're actually saying, let's have a conversation about what we might try. Now, it's politically unpopular to do that, but it's actually where I think the future of economics lies. We have to have a much more open ended conversation about almost a type of experimentation that has to take place and uh, an acknowledgement that nobody is going to get this right at all times. So, to come back to your question, The communication about what that adjustment might look like and which new types of organizations might be needed is a a critical part of the story of institutional variety. I don't think we can theorize it in the abstract. We really have to look at what is there uh, and what is likely to come. So every country or every region is quite different. So if there's one thing to take away from kind of the perspective of institutional variety, it's really that you should recognize that your economy is not going to look like any other, exactly. And starting from that pragmatism, uh, then one can start looking for proximate comparisons or good adjustment mechanisms. I don't think there's any other way. Um, So you could say it's not really science, you're right, but economics
2: wasn't ever really science. Well, well a wonderful way to to, to finish, Mita. Thanks so much for joining us on Economics. It's been fascinating, and, and Karen, we need to get more microeconomists on the show. That's for absolute certainty. After that discussion, it was absolutely fascinating, to me. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks a ton.
1: A real pleasure.
2: Okay, Karen, so that was our first microeconomist. My first question is, why is that our first microeconomist? That was amazing. Whose fault is it we've never invited a microeconomist before?
1: That's yeah, probably mine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'll take, I'll take at least 50% of the blame.
0: <laughs> so uh, interesting that she finished on... My uh, economics is, is not science again. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, slightly satisfying for me. Uh, I, I, I want it to be more scientific. Of course, it's really important mm-hmm. for humanity that it becomes more scientific.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, a, a really interesting perspective. In and there was there was more of a humility there, wasn't there, with that with that discipline. And I, I think macroeconomics is tends to have this, you know, this macro approach. Do this and it'll affect everything. And she was very much saying, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Practically, it doesn't work like that. There's loads and loads of different things. And also, we don't know what's going to make the difference. And again, when, when you compare that to the macro economists who are saying raise interest rates, and it will reduce inflation. You know, there's. it's almost like, you know, as, as we say, if, if, if you've only got a hammer, then every problem's a nail. And that seems to be the situation we're in at the moment. So really, really fascinating insights from Smita. Yeah, I mean, it's really relevant for me right
0: now. I've actually just been at a meeting um, that uh, is, is actually dealing with the area of Aberdeen that I'm looking after. And, um, it, you know, it was along with... Um, a a group of people that um, are are working with the charities. They're an umbrella organisation. And, you know, they've divided up this into smaller sections, again, to look at the the issues in certain parts of Aberdeen, so the north, the centre and the south, and, uh, you know, in the communities within them as well. So there's a lot more examination of, you know, what's actually going on in these communities and thinking differently uh, about you know why they're different and how they need to be helped in a certain way you know it's just not the case that one size fits all of course not yeah. um so you know that's a huge really important that issue
2: yeah absolutely and when when you look at systems dynamics it says that a system is much more resilient when it has variety and and if we look at the united kingdom as a system which we should do you know everything, the moves that we are, that we are making. You know, with the Internal Markets Act and coming out of the European Union and trying to make sure, you know, in our own weights and measures and ridiculous things like that, it's reducing all that. It's reducing the variety, and that's where you know independence uh, and subsidiarity, more power for all the regions and independence for the nations, has a really positive power base because you're saying this just allows us to do things differently. And difference is a great way to secure the overall system. Whereas, you know, the example that um, Smita had around COVID, when when there was just one response to COVID, if that one response failed, then it was absolute disaster. But countries had very different responses and and, and it led to countries succeeding differently. So, you know, there's real evidence base that being able to do things differently and not just the same as the other parts of the system are really important for an economy.
0: Yeah, I mean, a very obvious example would be people who have strong religious beliefs, and in countries that are are very highly populated and densely populated with people with very strong religious beliefs, this this would completely affect how people respond to a health pandemic in, in the way that perhaps a country which is more, uh, is not really, is more secular, you know, so mm. that, that's, that's definitely going to have an effect on people's thinking and reactions as well. I just thought it was really uh, interesting that she, again, she come from a science background Um, I I was surprised that it was actually maths that really uh, was where she came from because a lot of the language in her paper, yeah, like zoos and evolution, um, she she was using quite a lot of language that I learned when I did my degree. So, um, yeah, that was quite interesting that she'd, to to me, her paper was fascinating for that reason, that she was envisaging these uh, economic Entities in that way, and I guess that I do as well. So that was really interesting for me too, because of course the economy is really describing or trying to describe the real world, and it's in, its interactions with each other via currency. You
2: know, yeah, yeah. Well, well, certainly. Um, I mean, my, my awareness in institutional economics was was um, prepped really when I read um how how, uh, how states how nations fail, which was really looking at. All the the failure of nations and then kind of fundamentally saying it's down to the structure of their institutions and it's a very strong argument that was put forward and when we look at the prospectus for Scottish independence how much work do you think so far has gone on to this fundamental approach towards institutions and I would hope that you know whether it's done previously done now or or, or in the future but we've got to really focus on what our institutions do and it's got to be a big part of the prospectus I think to properly understand what you know our central bank how we are going to regulate our markets what about firms and you know I know you're a big fan of of communities of community-based approaches and you know We've got to look at all of that when we um, re-envisage our economy. So do you think much of that work's being done at the moment? And do you agree that it's really important or you think that'll just come once we're independent? I think that we can do it
0: more effectively when we're independent and when we become a currency issuer. That's just a big hurdle that we just don't need in order to make the changes in our society that we need to make. So, for example, you know, um, you know, a lot of our healthcare services up in the northeast suffer from not a lack of money from the Scottish government. It's a lack of real resource, and the real resource is people. Yeah. Um, So, you know, in a sparsely populated area you know, with an aging population, you need more younger people to help look after them. You know, this is just a very basic fact. Um, but how you deal with that when you're a currency user gives you lots of constraints that you you don't need. It's not a panacea to become a currency creator. Um, I really want to emphasize that. It's very obvious to me, but it's just a big hurdle that you don't need when you're trying to solve a lot of societal issues
2: yeah yeah well um we're definitely going to have some more microeconomists. thanks so much for joining us karen nice to see you and everyone take care and we'll see you again soon bye bye <laughs>